How's your health this morning? I'm guessing that all of us, if, if we were going to talk about how our health is, we'd be somewhere on the spectrum between almost perfectly healthy and maybe not healthy at all. I, this is more information than you want to know, but just so that I can start the discussion rolling today. I, as far as I know, I'm fairly healthy. I have one issue. I have some moderate high blood pressure, which is from years of worrying and high-intensity lifestyle. And because of that, my doctor has prescribed a medication for me that I've been on for two or three years, a little beta blocker that I need to take every day. And I need to take it, and I'm thankful for that medication, and it would help me. It, it helps me to take it. But here's what you would be able to tell me without even knowing me. You would be able to say, Mark, it is good for you that you're on that medication, but medication is not enough. Because if you want to maximize your health, as important as the medication is to you, you would say something like this to me. There are actions in and actions out that are going to bear upon your health in such a fashion that if you want to maximize your health, you need more than the medication. You need to do these things. You need to make some healthy choices. And by actions in, you would be referring to what I eat and what I allow into my body and mind. And actions out would be the thoughts and the actions I generate, such as exercise. So, I mean, all of us would know that. that. That's not rocket science. In fact, every once in a while I get a little bit perturbed with the intelligentsia, so-called, in this area as they try to present something to us as rocket science, which has been settled long ago. A few weeks ago I opened up the Wichita Eagle, and I turned to the page two of the Eagle, if I remember right, and there was a headline in the Eagle about uh, medical professionals that had gathered in Hawaii for a conference. I was instantly suspicious about that already. But it seems that millions of dollars have been paid to do a survey, a study. And the results of that study were to be revealed at this conference in Hawaii. And here were the results of the study. Check this out. That if you have a diet that is high in saturated fat, fat you could have an elevated stroke risk. <laughs> now that set all my idiot alerts off. I'm thinking, why would you spend millions of dollars for something that we, we've known for forever? If you have a diet that's high in saturated fats, you probably got an elevated stroke risk. But here's the thing. That, that, that's just the principle that we draw from that. When I ask the question, how's your health? None of us is perfectly healthy. You may be almost perfectly healthy. You may be not healthy. But still, for all of us, there is a universal truth that if any of us wants to maximize our health, I mean, if we're on medication, we need to stay on our medication. But the deal is this. If we want to maximize our health, there's actions in, actions out that we need, to, we need to perform. Let me go to another place. How's your emotional health today? How's your mental health? Chances are, if you're over 50, you don't want to talk about that because you grew up in there when nobody talked about emotional health and mental health. My goodness, you're more likely to talk about sex in a, in a setting like this than you would be to talk about a mental and emotional health. But the truth of the matter is, just as none of us is perfectly physically healthy, Let's be honest today, none of us is perfectly emotionally healthy. If I'm talking to somebody here today and you're dealing with emotional and mental issues, mental health issues, you may feel like you're the only person in the room who deals with that. Would you just take it from somebody who spent his life talking with people who have these issues? Would you just take it from me that there's nobody here who's perfectly emotionally healthy and there's nobody here who's perfectly mentally healthy because our minds are like our bodies. And some of us have been diagnosed with a specific condition. And I am thankful that today we're a lot wiser and more knowledgeable about the health of the mind than we were 50 years ago. And we're able to, we're able to sort out a lot of the different kinds of depression and, 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 and things like bipolar disorder and, and 
you know, attention deficit disorder and post-traumatic stress syndrome and postpartum depression and on and on. I'm, I'm thankful that we're more sophisticated about that. And it could be that someone is here and you would say, in fact, I'm sure many of us here today have said, Mark, I've had a professional diagnose me and, and, and I even take a medication for, for, my, for my disorder. And I am thankful that there's been a great deal of knowledge gained in the last few decades about antidepressants and, and anti-anxiety medications. But at the end of the day, even if you are on a good medication, just as if you might be on a medication for your health, it's, it's also important about the healthy choices that you make. I mean, if you're on a medication for depression and it's, and it's good and it's right, you need to stay on that medication. But by the same token, you cannot rely on that medication alone for your healthy thinking any more than I can rely on the beta blocker I take to really take care of my high blood pressure. There are actions in what you allow into your mind and actions out the thoughts that you generate that are going to have a huge bearing upon you maximizing your emotional and mental health. So for six weeks, we're going to talk about what isn't talked about a lot in public settings. We're going to talk about our emotional and, and mental health, and we're going to talk about the, the kinds of actions in, the, the kinds of things that we allow in, and the kinds of thoughts that we generate. We're going to talk about that for six weeks, and at the end of the six weeks, I just totally believe that wherever you are on the spectrum of emotional and mental health, I believe you're going to grow, and you're going to improve, and you're going to, you're going to think a lot about how to be happy. Our series is called Run, Force, Run. I love that idea of running because it, 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 after all these years of pastoring and then dealing with my own personal journey, I've discovered that most times we're unhappy either because we're running from something or we're running to something. Think about that for a moment. If, if you're not in a comfortable place today emotionally, chances are if you think it through, it's because you're either running from something, something is scaring you, something's intimidating you, something's worrying you, or you're running to something. You know, I need to get this. When I get this, I'll be happy. When I get married, I'll be happy. When I get divorced, I'll be happy. When I have kids, I'll be happy. When they grow up and leave, I'll be happy. I'll be happy when I get into college. I'll be happy when I get out of college. I'll be happy when I get a job. I'll be happy when I get a different job. You know what I'm saying? So if, if we're not where we need to be emotionally today, chances are it's because we're either running from something or running to something. Have you ever considered what made Forrest Gump an instant movie classic? If you just go with the the common word on the street, it would be, well, it's an easy answer. Let me see. I've heard a lot of things through the years, and to kind of sum it up, it's a well-written comedy drama about a slow-witted Southerner. How many times have I read that expression? And I'm from the South, so I, I chafe at that a little bit. About a slow-witted Southerner played by perhaps the best actor of our generation. I mean, if you want to think about what made Forrest Gump an instant classic, you could go with that. It's a well-written comedy drama about a slow-witted Southerner played by one of the greatest actors of our generation. I'm convinced of something else. First time I saw Forrest Gump years ago, I said to myself, this is a commentary on a generation. That's what Forrest Gump is about. For a lot of you who are younger than I, you, you may not sync up with this, but if you're a baby boomer as I am, you get this, or at least I hope you get this when you watch the movie. The baby boom is the largest generation sociologically in recent history. It's, it's those who were born from the year 1946 to the year 1964. What happened was our fathers had been fighting the war in World War II. They came home. They had families. They had big families. America was growing more affluent. Some people were having more kids. So there was an explosion of births from 46 to 64, and it's, that's why it's called the baby boom. And for all of you who were younger or older, this is why we are so cotton-picking and sufferable because there's so many of us. 
And I understand the generation real well because I was born in one of the median years of the baby boom, 1956. So when I sat down and watched Forrest Gump, I thought, this is a commentary on my generation. Because I watched the history of Forrest Gump as he moved from the civil rights era to the Vietnam era, the Watergate era, the information explosion era. You know, all the aspects of our life were presented there. But Forrest Gump is more than just a, a representation of that generation and all generations that follow, by the way. To some degree, listen to me, please. It's an indictment of us. Because the baby boom and the generations that came after, we had more. We had more leisure time because of labor-saving devices. And we knew more because of the information explosion. You know, we had more. We moved faster. We knew more. We had more leisure time. But the problem is with all those so-called advances, we weren't happy. We didn't take drugs because we felt good. People took drugs because they didn't feel good. And I think to some degree the movie is just a simple commentary on the fact that with all the stuff that we have in the 20th century, isn't it odd that by juxtaposition the slow-witted southerner is happy when everybody around him who seems to know so much more isn't happy? Well, it's not new. It's not the first time that entertainment has gone into this. If you're under 40, you're probably too young to know what this is about. But if you're over 40, you remember there was a television show in the 60s called The Beverly Hillbillies. And The Beverly Hillbillies centralized around the character of Jed Clampett. The Clampett family was a family that lived out in the sticks away from everything. They had no sophistication at all. But oil was discovered in the land, and somebody suggested they move to Beverly Hills. And the humor of that show for 12 years was all about this poor bumpkin family who didn't have any of the sophistication of life picked up and set down in the middle of Beverly Hills. But on a deeper level, on a deeper emotional, intellectual, and psychological level, the story of the Beverly Hillbillies is the complex dichotomy of Jed Clampett and Milburn Drysdale. Jed Clampett, the country bumpkin, and Milburn Drysdale, the urbane, sophisticated bank president. And what made us laugh throughout the years was that Jed Clampett didn't know anything about Beverly Hills, but when you saw the two of them together, you were always aware of this one thing. Jed Clampett is the smartest man in the room. And that is what we like about Forrest. He doesn't know what the people around him know. He doesn't have the advantages the people around him have. But we laugh and we like the movie because we are the third party there watching it all play out. And we know that Forrest Gump is the smartest guy in the room. He doesn't know what the others know, but he knows what they don't know. He knows how to be happy. Do you know how to be happy? Are you, do, you, do you know what you need to know in order to be happy? You know, we love that scene between Forrest and Jenny. You know, we just saw it a few moments ago where he said, I may not be a smart man, but I know what love is. Well, you know, that's entertainment. That's fiction. You and I are living in the real world. And so the question for you and me today is not how can we sort through that movie and figure it out. The question is how can we go through life and so this is just an introduction today. Please know this is not a sermon. This is just a, an, we're sort of getting into it. In the next five weeks, we're going to start unfolding it. But there is a book in the Bible that is very special to me. There's 66 books in the Bible, but there's one Bible, and it's only four chapters long. I call it my antidepressant. 
It's a book called Philippians. If you, if you find any of my Bibles, these four pages are going to be well-worn because I reread it and reread it and I reread it. Philippians is all about how to think healthy. And that's why I love the book so much. And so for the next six weeks, we're going to be looking at the book of Philippians and learning how to, how to think. I mean, in fact, we're going to learn so many key thoughts, but Philippians sort of reaches its, mount, reaches its mountain peak in chapter 2, verse 5, when it just simply says this, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. In other words, think like Jesus. We're going to have fun with Forrest. But the important thing is for you to learn to think like Jesus thought. And Philippians is all about helping you and me to be happy because we think like Jesus thought. Well, let's just get started for a few minutes today. I'm convinced that being happy begins for us where Philippians starts in chapter 1, verse 9. Listen to this prayer by Paul as he's writing to these Philippian Christians. He said, I pray that your love will overflow more and more and that you will keep on growing in knowledge and in understanding for I want you to understand what really matters. I want you to understand what really matters. See, here's the thing, and this goes back to the Gump movie. A lot of us understand and know many things. And, and we're excited about what we know. The problem is we don't know what we need to know. And if we don't know what we need to know, and if we don't know what truly matters, we'll wind up living our lives and be disappointed at the end of our lives or at key moments. I don't know how college is today. It's been so many years since I've been in college. But when I was in college, you, you, couldn't, you couldn't get out of Western lit without reading a short story by a French author named Guy, Ma, uh, Guy de Maupassant called The Necklace. I don't know if any of you have read The Necklace. But I've thought about it many times since I was a 19-year-old college student and read the story in class. Real quickly, let me just kind of give you an overview. It was a story of a, of a French girl named Matilda, beautiful French girl. And she was constantly concerned that she was never going to be able to be everything that she could be because she grew up in a poor family, a family of clerks. She dreamed of being the queen of the party and, and having everyone notice her beauty, but unfortunately she just couldn't seem to get ahead. And she married a guy that was like her father. She married a clerk who worked for the government. Day after day, she chafed under the fact that her life was always going to be miserable mediocrity. Well, one day, her husband came home from work, and he was waving something that he knew was going to make his wife very happy. He had an engraved invitation from the minister of education. That would be like a secretary, a, a, a secretary in government today, cabinet member. And he just knew his wife was going to love this because they had a chance to rub shoulders with the, with the beautiful. But as soon as she saw the invitation, she began to cry and saying, why did you bring this home? Why don't you just go give it to somebody else? And he said, why are you reacting that way? She said, and some of you have heard this before, I have nothing to wear. <laughs> so he said, well, what would it take to buy a dress that, that would be adequate for this? And she quoted a figure for him that was a huge amount of money. It would be like thousands of dollars in, in our culture today. But he, he so wanted her to be happy that he pulled the money out of savings and went out and bought this magnificent gown for her to wear. And he was just sure now that she would be happy. But on the day of the party, she began to cry again. He said, what's the matter now? And he, she said, well, I don't have any jewelry to wear. And he said, well, why don't you just wear flowers? Guys don't get it. They didn't get it in 19th century either, did they, ladies? <laughs> why don't you wear flowers? She said, I can't wear flowers. I can't go tonight. 
And, she, and he said, well, you know, you've got this real rich friend. She had an older woman who was a friend in her life that was very wealthy. And he said, why don't you go talk to her and ask her to borrow some of her jewelry? So she went over to the lady's house and she said, could I borrow some jewelry to wear tonight? And the woman said, absolutely. So she brought out all of her jewelry and laid it out for Matilda. Matilda couldn't find anything she wanted. She said, do you have anything else? She brought out a wooden box, and she said, yeah, I've got this. And he opened it up, and it was a diamond necklace. And Matilda said, I'll take that. So on the night of the party, she dresses in the beautiful gown, puts on the diamond necklace, and indeed, she is magnificent. She is, she is the star. She is the, she is the queen of attention at this place. I mean, all the guys were staring at her. Magnificent beauty in this beautiful gown and the diamond necklace. Husband finally gets tired. He goes to sleep over in a corner. She stays till 4 o'clock. She wakes him up and they leave. He said, i got to go out and find a cab. Uh, you stay here. But she didn't want to stay there because her rap was so common. She said, no, I'll go with you. And so they have a hard time at 4 o'clock at Paris trying to find a cab. Eventually they find one. They get in the cab and they go home. And she stands before the mirror one more time to see herself before she must undress. But when she stares at herself in the mirror, alas, she discovers that the diamond necklace is gone. The clasp must have broken or something. And so they retrace their steps. They, they look. They try to find the cab, but they can't find the necklace anyplace. And now they have a real problem on their hands because they have an expensive piece of jewelry that they're responsible for. They begin to shop to find out what it would cost to, you know, to find the necklace that was identical so that they could bring it back to the lady and say, here, here's your necklace. And they happened to find one that was really identical. But the only problem was it was amount of, it was amount of money that they couldn't even imagine. Her husband had received an inheritance they expected to build their life on. But he looked at that inheritance and thought it would only be half the money needed to replace the diamond necklace. And so he did what a lot of people would do. He, he went out and he found every shady lender he could find. And they basically signed their lives away to acquire enough money to buy a replacement necklace. And when she took the necklace back, the woman hardly noticed it, complained that they were late bringing it back, didn't even look at it and put it aside. But for the next 10 years, this couple basically lived through hell trying to replace that necklace. She took every job. I mean, this beautiful woman who dreamed of great things took every job, every scrub woman job she could find. The man took extra work. Their marriage was decimated. She aged much more than the 10 years. She looked 30 years older when they finally paid it off. When the necklace was finally paid for, one day walking through the street, she happened to come across the older woman who had loaned her the necklace, and finally getting up her courage to tell her the truth, she began to address the woman, but the woman was amazed that a common scrub woman would address her on the streets, and when the woman who loaned the necklace recognized who she was, she almost shrieked in horror to see what was the beautiful young woman. And Matilda said, you, have, you don't know this, but you have ruined our lives. And she told the story of the horrors that they had to go through to earn the money to replace the necklace. And at the end, in a moment of dramatic irony, the woman said, oh, my dear, I am so sorry for you. That necklace was made of paste. It didn't cost more than a few francs. I read that when I was 19 years old in college. But I cannot tell you how many times I've thought of de Maupassant's the necklace. In 36 years of pastoring, I've met people that have used up their lives only to find out they've used up their lives for paste. 
They've pursued, they've chased things that didn't matter. And I believe today that's why so many people who've arrived in high places with lots of money and lots of accolades in life demonstrate and project their unhappiness culturally. It's because they finally realize that they've, they've been pursuing, but all the time they've been pursuing paste. Paul said, I want you to know what really matters. Do you know what matters? You know, here's the thing, and I'm not, I'm not trying to guess what you're like, but I'm, I'm just going to tell you what my predisposition is. If you press me about, am I living my life by what really matters? If you were to back me against the wall today and you say, Mark, do you know what really matters? I would tend to respond by telling you all the things that I do know. In other words, I would, I would somehow answer you by telling you the complexity of everything I've learned. See, there's an axiom I'm convinced of, and it's this. Complexity tends to give us an unjustified sense of superiority. In other words, if we've got degrees, if we've been to the university, if we've learned a lot where we are, if we've gotten a lot of complexity in our lives, it tends to give us a feeling of superiority. That's why the people in Forrest Gump thought they were superior to him. They had complex information. We always use the term simple in referring to Forrest Gump. And I'm not talking about the, com you know, the complexity of the guy living on Oreos in his mom's basement contemplating life on Mars. I'm talking about the kind of complexity that our generation communicates to us that we need to get ahead. <laughs> Every once in a while, I kind of get a kick out of hanging with, you know, in a corporate setting with corporate types. I, it, it is strange to me how that in some of these settings, there's sort of a saccharine sense of energy. There's a sort of manufactured fake energy that's part of the conversation that is this high interaction in this corporate setting. And, and I'm a person who's been involved in a lot of major decisions, and I'm saying to myself, this is all bogus. I mean, all this energy that's communicated in this conversation isn't genuine. It's just manufactured. See, complexity tends to give us a sense of superiority. So all I'm saying to you today, and I'm saying this to myself today, yeah, we've learned a lot. This is the information age. Sure, we can get a hold of any piece of information we want, but how do we measure what we've learned? Do we measure it in terms of motion or in terms of meaning? I don't know how you would respond, but if, if somebody were to like ask me in an uncomfortable way, Mark, do you really know what matters? I would say, oh, gosh, you know what? I'm just so busy. I just stay in motion all the time. But that isn't the answer to the question, is it? See, what, what, what happens is I tend to say what I know is important because it translates into motion. But does it translate into meaning? Am I changing the world? Am I doing the things that really matter? Am I expressing what needs to be stressed to the, stressed to the people who are truly important in my life? There's a story in the Bible. It isn't Forrest Gump, but it's even better. Because this story is a primer for us about the things that matter. Jesus is going to dinner at the home of a couple of, well, at least one well-to-do woman. Sisters. Martha, who's very wealthy and very successful, and her younger sister Mary. And Jesus is going there with his whole posse for dinner. And so Jesus and his entire entourage, they're in the living room of the house. Martha is in the back room trying to get dinner on the table for all these guys. Let's read. A woman named Martha opened her home. That's an amazing thing because this is a male-dominated culture. And Martha owned the house. And not only that, she owned a big house. So she's, 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 a, she's a mover and shaker. A woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. 
But Martha was distracted. Greek word marimna means to be conflicted or pulled in separate directions. Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care? Read that, Lord, you don't care. Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Okay, help me. Let's engage in a little analysis here. Martha's large and in charge. This is her house. She's in motion. She's trying to get dinner. And because Martha is in motion and what she's doing is complex, Martha has a feeling of superiority. Watch this. She feels superior to her sister. Tell her to get in here and help me. And for the moment, she feels superior to Jesus because she is telling him what to do. In fact, in a backhanded kind of way, she is telling Jesus that he does not know what he needs to know. She is busy getting dinner, and Jesus is oblivious to that. He's in there teaching. He's actually an accomplice to the fact that her sister is in there listening to Jesus. Now look at how Jesus settled this. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried, read this with me, you are worried and upset about, what's the next two words? Many things. You worried and upset about many things. But only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better. It will not be taken away from her. Okay, 21st century Americans, let's check this out. Here's Martha. Martha's saying, hey, I'm worried about many things. My sister is worried about one thing. Let's do the math. Many versus one. Martha is superior. And yet Jesus comes along and says, wait a minute, Martha. It's true. You, you're worried about more things than Mary, but you're not superior because you're worried about more things. Unfortunately for you, Mary has chosen the one thing that will matter. See, that's all I'm saying to you and me today. A lot of us are not happy because we've got many things that we're, we, we'll talk about having lots of irons in the fire. We'll talk about having lots going on as if somehow that's a justification for the way we're living our lives. But the question is, do we know what really matters? Well, Jesus gives us three criteria here, and I like them. They help me. He said there's three things about Mary's choice. Number one, she chose what was needed. She chose what was better. And then she chose what can't be taken away from her. Well, that's a pretty good measurement right there. How many of us are being chased by stuff that really isn't needful? How many of us are chasing things that are not really needful? How many, are, how many of us are chasing things that are good but they're not better? Or we're, we're after things that at the end of the day, they're temporary. They can be taken away from us. Hey, would you try an exercise? I don't know about you, but I can testify this exercise changed my life three years ago nearly. Whatever you take notes on, if you're old school like me and you take notes on a legal pad or you got an iPad or you got some sort of app in which you take notes, I want to challenge you to do an exercise this week. Create a document. And title the document, you ready for this? Things I'm going to stop doing. See, a lot of us think the success is in the things that we start doing. And maybe there is some truth to that. But I just want to challenge you. Create an exercise. I'm just, this is where we start by being happy today. Go home and say, things I'm going to stop doing. Because happiness is not finding what you don't have. Happiness, a lot of times, is getting rid of what you don't need. Things I'm going to stop doing. I wrote a couple of statements to help me. See if they help you. 
In my notes, I wrote, or my journal, I wrote, I'm unhappy when I'm chasing what would disappoint me if I caught it. And I am unhappy when I allow myself to be chased by someone or something that should have no power over me. Does that resonate with anybody here today? I'm unhappy when I allow myself to be chased by someone who should have no power over me or by something that should have no power over me. So I challenge you. Go home. Create a document. Things I'm going to stop doing. Well, in closing today, it could, it could be you're saying, Mark, I really appreciate what you've opened up. I'm still wrestling with this. I'm not sure I really know what matters in my life. Well, I got some really special news for you, and it's this. God will help you. And I think it's going to take God to help us in this journey. I mean, you can apply, you can apply Jesus' criteria, and that will be helpful. You can do the exercise, and that will help you. But at the end of the day, you're going to need God to help you because here's the deal. You and I are different people, and you're different from the person sitting next to you. And so you're going to need God to sort of help you know what's important in your life. And I find it interesting that Paul said, I pray that you understand what really matters. He didn't say, I'm sending you a list of what really matters. He said, I'm praying for you because it will take God's help. Let me give you some things, three questions to ask to get you started as you pray. If you want to know what really matters in life, you need to know three things. You ready for this? Number one, you need to know who God is. Because here's the deal. You and I tend to live our lives based on whatever or whoever is God in our lives. And the problem is that many of us who love God and we worship God, the issue is we're allowing someone or something else to be God in our lives. And the problem is this. Imposters will show up in your life and my life, and they will proclaim that they are God. Let me tell you one of the imposters that shows up in my life. And I have believed, trust me, I have believed this one. The urgent The urgent will come to you on a daily basis and say, I am God. You must obey me. This is urgent. You know, I got a lesson about this years ago. Not everything that that presents itself as urgent truly is urgent. This is back back years ago when we were located on South Hillside when we had about 400 people in our church. And I did all the counseling. And I remember I even, I worked all the time like I do today. And most of the time I worked part of my day off. But this particular day off, I was doing something with my family. And I got a call that there was a couple that was having marital problems, and they said to the secretary, we need to talk to Mark right now. And so I was just about to tell my family, sorry, guys, i got to drop everything and run talk to this couple. And I'm so thankful that I, I happened to ask this couple why they need to talk to me right then. Because I didn't know, was he abusing her? Did they have some sort of you know, issue or something? I, I, I said, well, why, why does it need to be right now? And they said, well, we have a movie to go see at 6. What I said wasn't real nice. What I felt like saying was really bad. I assure you, I didn't meet them right then. And you know what? Not everybody who tells you their situation is urgent really is urgent. It's just most convenient for them. When the urgent shows up and says, I'm God, you say, no, you're not God. And there's something else that can show up and pretend to be God. And, and I think for, for all of us, it's, it's, it's somewhat of an issue. I think, I think for ladies, sometimes it's even a greater issue. And that is what I presume that I'm going to be measured by. You know, whatever we presume is going to measure us as a person, whatever's going to evaluate us as a person, sometimes when that shows up, it says, I am God. 
You need to look like this. You need to perform like this. If, you're, if you want to be successful, you have to be like this because this is how you're going to be measured. I'm thinking, wait a minute. I, I think I'm going to be measured by the true God. I'm not going to be measured by people's expectations. I'm not going to be measured by corporate America. I'm not going to be measured by entertainment America. I'm not going to be measured by the people in my neighborhood. They're not God. God is God. Another imposter that will show up and tell you that it's God is the intimidating. Many of us live our lives because... Not because we're making choices based on what's truly important to us. We're just being intimidated. We're being bullied. We're being bullied by life. We're being bullied by people. We're being bullied by unreal expectations. So I'm just saying, if you want to know what really matters, start with this. Say, God, tell me who you are. By the way, God will tell you who he is. Here's what he says, Jeremiah 31.3. I've loved you with an everlasting love. I've drawn you with everlasting kindness. My only responsibility is to please a loving God who loves me unconditionally. Wow, it's amazing how that brings things to the list. Trust me on that one. The second question that you need to ask after who is God is who am I? Because you weren't made to be every person. See, I think a lot of us are unhappy because we feel like we've got to be everything to everybody. No, you are made to be you. If you're not you, who will be you? Nobody else can be you because God has made everybody to be a single person. A person of design. God, who did you make me to be? And very quickly after that, we'll follow the third question. What did you design me to do? You're not designed to do what I do. I'm not designed to do what you do. Problems come when we don't know who God is and we don't know who we are and we don't know what we're here to do. We, we tend to live our lives for paste, for things that don't matter. Years ago, I came across a copy of the suicide note written by Ralph Barton, the famous cartoonist. I think he took his life when he was about 40. He said, and I thought this was significant for the title of our series, I have run from wife to wife, from house to house, from country to country in a ridiculous effort to escape myself. Think about that. And he said, I am fed up with inventing devices to fill 24 hours of the day. I want to close by going back to the verse that I started with because I stopped it in the middle. I read to you what Paul said. I want you to understand what really matters. And now he says, so that. So what's the takeaway for knowing how life matters? Why, why, why is it important for us to know what really matters? Let's read. I want you to understand what really matters so that you may live pure and blameless lives until the day of Christ's return. If you're like me and you read the Bible, you think, pure and blameless. Those are good Bible words. I don't know for sure what they mean, but it sounds really good, whatever it is. Oh, gosh, you got to get this. Pure. That's a very colorful Greek word. Let me see if this helps. Do you ever get dressed and you think you're ready to go and you get in your car and you back your car out of the garage and the sun comes through the windows of your car and through the sunroof and, and you like look in the mirror and you're thinking, ooh, I didn't see that. That's exactly what that word means. Paul said, look, I want you to know what really matters so that you will live lives that pass the sunlight test. See, here's the deal. If you're living for, you know, if you're a typical American living for stuff that doesn't matter, you don't have any problems today, 
you, you're probably not inclined to really analyze yourself. It's because like, well, I'm, I'm all right. I'm, you know. But all of a sudden, you get into the bright light of testing. You go through something difficult and a relationship breaks up or you lose your job or your health is threatening to be deteriorated. And that bright sunlight comes in and you're not living for the things that really mattered. I want you to trust me on this. It'll show up real quick. That's why some of you who are going through hard times right now, you're better off than the rest of us who are not going through hard times because you know what really matters. The bright sunlight of testing has come in on your life. And then the second thing that Paul said is not only do you need to know what matters so that your life will pass the sunlight test, he said, work with me on this for just a real quick moment and we'll be through. I want you to think about the person who's hurt you more than anybody else in your life. Think about a person who's caused you damage. Let me ask you a question. Honestly, do they know how to live? Do they get it? I'll bet you if you look at the person who's hurt you the most in your life, you would say, no, they don't get it. How many times have we been hurt by people that didn't even know they were hurting us when they hurt us? Clueless. That's what Paul is saying. He's saying, look, I want you to know what really matters so that your life will pass the sunlight test and so that you won't hurt anybody. Because there's something about people who know what really matters. They're safe. Think about the people who have helped you the most. Think about the people who've invested in you the most. Isn't it true? They get it. I want you to know what really matters so that your life will pass a sunlight test and so that you'll be a safe person for everybody around you. Well, we just got started today. That's just an introduction. We're going to really get started next week. Thank you for being here. We'll see you next weekend.